For those of you who may be listening or haven't noticed or haven't been here to notice, we've been doing a shared prayer, um, sort of a call and response type thing. So I'm going to ask that you read the part in bold when we get there, all right? And I'll start us out here. I think I'm going to read it from here. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Lord, you have endowed human beings with the ability to search out your laws and have given them the freedom to apply their knowledge as they choose. We ask your blessing on all engaged in scientific research and technology and on those who provide the resources for such, for such work, that choices may be made of projects which both enhance human life and have regard to the safety and well-being of the natural order. May we thus be true stewards of your bounty to your greater glory. Amen. And David Wilburn is what sort of scientist? Uh, so he's actually um, a researcher in theology of work, and so he's um, uh, worked on theology of science as part of that, and so this is part of his contribution to that. Okay. So now we're going to have a reading from the uh, book of Job. We're going to skip the science minute. There was just too many technological yeah, advances this last week that we just that's right. we couldn't choose. There's some great gravity wave stuff. Maybe we'll talk. About we couldn't that. choose one. It was too hard. So uh, this is from Job 38. Okay. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, "Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out? Who stretched the measuring line across it?" On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their season, seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's a great meditation to open with, I think. Um, so last week, um, I talked about um, what's called the Cretaceous Paleogene Extinction Event, uh, better known as the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, right? And this was a massive um, catastrophe, a massive collision, because um, when that asteroid hit the Earth, it landed with the force of millions of atom bombs going off simultaneously. It kicked up mega tsunamis of hundreds of feet tall that washed around the globe. It burned the Earth's forest. It sent billions of tons of material into the atmosphere. It turned the skies dark, and it plunged the Earth into decades of freezing cold. And so 75% of the species on Earth died. It wasn't just an extinction for the dinosaurs, it was an extinction for massive amounts of life on Earth. All kinds of ecosystems, all kinds of ecologies were obliterated. And it left this uh, massive Chicxulub crater in the Gulf Coast and a dividing line written in the rocks all over this planet, signifying the moment, as this student put it, where we shifted from... Yes, dinosaurs to no dinosaurs. So I think you would reasonably think that this was one of the most significant events to have ever happened in this planet's history. Right? But I suggested last week that something 
even more significant, has actually happened in the last nine months. And that's that NASA landed a spacecraft on an asteroid, changing its orbit, its orbit, its course and its trajectory, so that they could demonstrate the ability and test the ability to deflect killer asteroids from now on. Right? So this is the double asteroid redirection test. It launched and landed with incredible precision. They measured, they could see it happen, um, and they watched um, exactly how that played out in incredible detail and even live footage. And they measured what it did afterwards, and, and it was uh, well within the parameters they were looking for. So this is a moment that I would argue is more significant in the history, not only of our species, our civilization, but life on this planet, right? Because this is the moment that all of the species on Earth shift from being under threat of those kinds of killer asteroids as they've been ever since the last one came to that threat no longer being a real concern. From now on, humanity is deflecting killer asteroids. And unless there are other species out there in the galaxy doing these kinds of things, then this event is not just significant for life on this Earth. It's of cosmic significance because this is the first moment in the history of the universe that planets started, stopped colliding into asteroids and started redirecting them. So that brings up a question. Yeah. No, NASA did this, but they did it with uh, collaboration from multiple different um, European Space Agency, uh, several different agencies around the world actually combined and collaborated on this. And so there were multiple points of view. You saw some video from different places, you know, things like this. Many different um, organizations were collaborating on this, but this was kind of led by, by NASA. And so, yeah. And uh, talking about it last week, it's like, this is one of the most significant events that has ever happened, and it got relatively little press, right? Like, most of us haven't been talking a lot about this since it happened. Who's us already did it? That's, that's right. We, we figured it out 30 years ago, right? <laughs> so, the question that this raises, how did we go from being a species without the ability to deflect killer asteroids, to being a species that had the ability to deflect killer asteroids. Yeah? We have the technological power of gods. Okay. That's, yeah, I like the way you put that. Yeah. What gave us that power? How did we get that power? Research. Research, okay. There had to be a sense of need. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Trial and error. Trial and error, yeah. There's a lot of that, yeah. This, this is not very heavy at all, but when you peel back all the words about me, about me, in humans, there is something in this world here to protect. Yeah. That's, it's that motivation that 
Yeah. Yeah, the motivation to care and protect. That's right. Um, even though this was a profound event, like I said, in, in some ways this got relatively little press. Um, the people who were engineering this and orchestrating it uh, didn't become rock stars, right? They did it because they had some other kind of motivation. Um, and ultimately, I think that does trace back to caring and concern and wanting to protect, right? Yeah. I think we have a natural curiosity at the belts. Can I invite somebody or anybody or everybody to give a kind of theological perspective? You know, the question, no, don't, don't laugh because that's my only contribution to the class. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the word was power. It's like, where did we get the power to do this? And people were like, trial and error and science and knowledge. Power. Yeah. Is there a theological explanation for that? Um, we have dominion as Micah. Yeah, that's it. It's Genesis. It's the dominion that God gave man. He gave man order, an order, a command to have dominion. This is an exercise of dominion. This is a, a reflection of the image of God. The power is given by God in him. That's the theological answer. Uh, from human understanding, in the beginning, perhaps, we don't know for sure how it's listed, but in the beginning, after the creation, they did not have this power. They did not know even if they had no clothes on. Sure. I mean, they, but it was, it was the fall that actually gave them, pushed them forward, maybe faster than God wanted. Mm, okay, we're going to have some theological debates on that. Yeah, there's, there's that. And uh, the comment over here, uh, understanding as the image of God, right, is, uh, is understanding. Understanding comes as the, that is the image of God. Yeah, so, yeah, th so this is directly connected with image of God, with um, the calling to cultivate and keep and protect life that we see in Genesis, right? We've already seen that in the, what we've looked at so far. And this is the kind of power, the power of God-like beings, right, that we, um, in some ways, the scripture is like, wow, how, how did we get this? And yet here we are, here it is. That's, I think, what Psalm 8 says. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? And yet, you have given us all of this authority and power in the created order. Yeah? I think in a, in a, in a way that impacts all of us, because none of us necessarily work on the Aspera thing, there's that scripture that says, we are God's workmanship, yeah. created in Christ Jesus for good works yes. that God's prepared beforehand. So yeah. each of us has an assignment Somebody's yeah. assignment was this, right? But everybody in this room also has an assignment that God's saying, "I'm all in." Help right. Me. Something really important. That's the. If you look at the first part of that, uh, or the previous verse, um, it says, you know, uh, we're saved by by grace through faith, right? right? A lot of people look at that and say, "Works don't matter," and that's not what that says. It says we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's not our own you know, like goodness that got us here. God put us in this situation. God is saving us so that we can do the works that God's prepared in advance for us to do, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, this may be totally wrecking okay. where you wanted this conversation to go. Bring it. Okay, so the, and, and in, the, in the spirit of full disclosure, the godlike power, I can't claim that as my own. It comes from a um, very intelligent person named, <laughs> don't laugh, Daniel Schmuckdenberger, okay. who works in the field of catastrophic risks. Okay, yeah, okay. And he says, we have the power of gods, and, uh, and we don't have the wisdom and love of God yeah. to know how to how to implement our technological advances yeah. in a way that preserves life, that serves all of humanity, yeah. that protects our planet. Which leads me to think, if we can deflect an asteroid, somebody else can direct one. Sure. Yeah. So there you go. So Happy, ever, Happy well, Sunday. Yeah. Uh, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> no, th that's... that's um, aspect of power every time we have it, right? We can use it for good or for evil. The more power we have for good, the more power we have for evil. And so that is a difficult thing for us to wrestle with, right? Because um, I think that we have theological reason to see God has called us to exercise the power that he gave us. And yet we know that this is a dangerous power and we see in Christian scripture how people can misuse it. I'm into the dangerous power of a really good idea for someone's next book is to fast forward several hundred years until this asteroid that was deflected in this attempt is now on a collision course for Earth because of that deflection. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So that that's something that um, that also has to be factored. And and they they were calculating this, but no matter how whatever we do, we're going to have to come back later and say, okay, now what situation does that put us in? There's always going to be those, uh, those side effects, those knock-on ramifications, unintended consequences. We're going to have to chase those down and, and deal with them. And going back, maybe, maybe you can expand on this more. So what really shifted at the fall? Was it a shift in power? Did we gain, were we given more power at that point, or was it a different community and right. um, use of that power that was the not a shift in what authority God gave us, but a shift in the role that was a new me. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. That's a good good set of questions. So, um, uh, um, I'm uh, like like with most of John's questions, I'm going to kick that down the road a little bit. Um, and um, there, I think it is really significant, um, and it is exactly the kind of question that um, some of the people I'm going to talk about in a minute were asking. Um, this is actually very much core to the scientific project and its origins. Something was raised at the very beginning about the, uh, that uh, these people were not known, not very well known. Sure. Uh, if you look at someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, has put himself out and probably everybody has heard of him or sure. heard him. Yeah. Does that help the advancement, or does that do have any effect on it? If, if if we have people in the scientific community yeah. that are well known and so forth, probably a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, Maybe we should add in what happened at the reversal of the fall. Yeah. In other words, Jesus is called yes. the last Adam, and yes. is called the yes. second man. Right. So so we are now part of that. Right. That, yeah, that I think is incredibly important for us to think about. Sometimes, uh, so 
uh, I mentioned Josh has talked about us trying to be a Genesis 1 and 2 church, right, to live out of that knowledge. But we do live after Genesis 3, right? We, so we live in a fallen world. But we also live in a world in which the Redeemer has stepped in and started a process of redemption and recovery. And we cannot let go of that, right? We don't simply... Yeah, we don't simply live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's being redeemed. And it says creation groans, waiting for its redemption. Yes, yes, absolutely. So Romans 8, which you're quoting, um, all creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Why? Because humanity was supposed to be doing this sort of protective, caring, cultivating work since the beginning, and creation has been waiting for humanity to get on that job, the works that God prepared in advance for us to do, okay? So I want to I want to offer a, a kind of pragmatic answer. We've been talking about the theology. What transformed us from a species that could not deflect killer asteroids to one that could? And there's a lot of steps on the path to that spacecraft landing on that asteroid. But I think that we can make a strong argument that most of them run through an event that happened within the last 500 years, something called the scientific revolution. Uh, people will date this a little bit uh, differently depending on what you are concerned with. So 16th and 17th centuries is typically where people look. 15 and 1600s is where this sort of thing happened. And as we've been talking about, Humanity has been a scientific species since the beginning, not just according to scripture, but according to archaeology. We looked at some evidence a few weeks ago that our most distant ancestors were engaged in engineering projects, that they were doing science, they were doing construction, they were redirecting ecosystems and ecologies in ways that they felt would better lead to the flourishing of life. So what happened here? What changed? What's different about this moment in history. So the historian Peter Harrison has a very practical take on this. And his answer is that throughout all of history, what we saw was a pattern he calls the boom-bust cycle. And so this is a pattern where some kind of genius, some brilliant person rises up, they begin a process of scientific work, they discover a bunch of things, they start accumulating knowledge, they start inspiring other people, and if they're lucky, they pass that activity on to another generation, and sometimes to even a third generation. And so you have this golden era of flourishing scientific discovery and knowledge. But inevitably... After a while, that progress slows, that activity dissipates, and usually most of the knowledge that was accumulated is lost. If you're fortunate, some of it's written down in books and passed on for generations. And we have a kind of cultural memory of this. If you watch Indiana Jones or look at our stories or legends or whatever, we have this idea of like digging into a forgotten archive or a forgotten trove and finding an ancient book of lost secrets about the world, like some lost wisdom from a golden age, because that is actually, for most of human history, how it actually was. Unless you were lucky enough to live in one of these boom cycles, you were, your best bet to find information about the universe was to go digging around for a work that had been lost eons ago. That's not the world we live in now. 
If you want to find information about the Andromeda galaxy, you're not digging for something three centuries ago in a forgotten treasure trove. You are going to a website that's been updated with the latest information in the last three months. Right? So we live in a different world. We don't live in a boom-bust cycle that characterized most of human history. We live, as Harrison puts it, in a, in a process of sustained, consolidated progress in science. So something made that shift. Something allowed us to continue this process, not just for one or two generations, but for dozens of generations, for hundreds of years. And that put that information not in locked away and hidden libraries, but actually is being basically pumped towards us all the time. Right? Millions of people get access to the latest scientific uh, research and knowledge. Right? So, would have huh. been more fun if they called it the boom boom cycle. Okay, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, a little more musical. Um, so, so yeah, how did, how did that shift happen? So Harrison says the only thing that can explain such a shift is, um, is a, a kind of value shift, a kind of value claim that moved scientific activity from a kind of uh, niche intellectual concern into a central intellectual concern of society. <laughs> This had to become crucially important to society, even during the times when it wasn't producing much fruit. That is key, right? Because early in the scientific uh, process, the results were not stellar. No pun intended. They were not, um, they were not just wowing people. In fact, the, the scientific um, community at this point was ridiculed for basically just spending time spinning their wheels, as, as people put it, right? So would, somebody, yeah. I would think that a significant thing that helped the sustained, consolidated pattern was how information was stored and relayed. Yeah. You know, when it's on some kind of like stone yeah. temple, we have a, we, it's not distributed very well, yeah. but then, you know, when you get to either higher, like a you know, yeah. books, then all of a sudden it can be transmitted and mm -hmm. that I'm sure made a big Yeah, information technology is a huge part of this. Um, but there also has to be, even for that, even, like, you know, books are an old technology, writing is an old technology, even the printing press is older than, than we kind of think of it as. And yet, there had to be a value system that says, here's what we are going to use this for because the, distribu the distribution of knowledge, the dissemination of knowledge is actually important. And um, something had to shift those resources, that focus in that direction. And Harrison says, really, there's only one candidate for what could shift the way this society thought about science in this time. That would, that would have been Martin Luther when he began to break the power of the church. Um, many, many scientists lost their life because they found facts that contradicted the doctrine. I'm going to put a pin in that. I'm going to say something similar. Um, Kick it down the road. Goodbye. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Peter Harrison's answer is this. The primary driver of that change was the Christian faith. People of faith started believing 
that science was a central activity that society and intellectuals and educated people and people with resources needed to be devoted to. Okay? And that conviction, which, was, which motivated the core people in the scientific revolution, also motivated them to evangelize that to their Christian communities, to compel people like, to come to this activity and to try to participate in this activity and try to support this activity. This is what Harrison is saying as a historian. And so what I'm saying is when we think about Christians in science, a lot of times we think about, we say something like, well, don't you know that a lot of people of science are also people of faith? Or even some of the early leading scientists were also believers, right? We say they were able to reconcile their science and their faith. And what I'm saying is so much stronger than that, that I think it's almost hard for us to believe in our current context. And yet I think this is the truth, that in the scientific revolution, science was a religious mission. The motivation for science was a motivation of evangelism and worship and service to God. And the belief that this was what people of faith needed to be doing was so strong, it moved entire societies to change their focus and their efforts and to consolidate progress over generations. So, John mentioned Martin Luther. So I want to talk about how we got to this point. Why did they come to the conclusion that science was a religious mission that they needed to undertake? We, in our context, we find science to be obvious, right? We've seen its effects. We know the kinds of things it can do. It seems like an obvious thing that we should be investing resources in this as a society. As I said earlier, this was not obvious to those people in that time. The fruits of science had not developed. They needed a theological reason to do this. They needed a religious and a spiritual reason to engage in this work. And so they started down this process of coming to that conclusion. As John said, it started with Martin Luther. Martin Luther, we, we think of as the, this Protestant reformer. He nailed his theses to the door. He challenged the Catholic Church. And then we got Protestant churches rivaling Catholic churches, right? I would suggest what actually happened is that he kicked off a process of reform, both in the Catholic world and in the Protestant world, where people were asking these questions over again. What does God actually want of us? What does God require of us? What are the core ideas of faith? And so as they started exploring these ideas, these questions about faith and works, and all these kinds of things they dealt with and they kept coming back to several of the scriptural truths that we've been talking about in this class. Truths such as God is a creator. And they asked questions about this. Right? If God is creator, how does God create? Does God micromanage? Does God create using laws? Truths such as creation is a revelation of God. If creation is a revelation of God, where do we go to find the knowledge God has put in creation? What is the proper method for getting that knowledge out? What is our God-given approach to this? 
We are creators made in the image of our creator, made to imitate our creator. What are we supposed to be creating? What are we supposed to be doing with our power? How do we best imitate God? And as they dealt with these questions, they formulated the basis of what we understand as modern science. The idea of nature as following laws handed down by God that has a process, a procedure, a methodology for exploring it, that we have a calling to go into nature and explore it and understand it and use that knowledge to cultivate and create life. This became the foundational understanding of of science that led to the scientific world that we live in today. But they also had to articulate the motivations. Why are we doing this? And as I've looked over the things that people were saying during this period of time, I see two big things that they focus on, two big motivations that they see for science. And one of them is the glory of God and the relief of humankind. So if you think about this, this is a kind of riff on the greatest commands. Jesus' greatest commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the idea that we were supposed to love God with all our mind, with our intellect, to seek out and discover the truths that God put in creation. That is an incredibly strong idea in this period. And the other idea, that we are supposed to love God with all our strength, with what we create, with what we build, with what we do. That's the other idea. And then to use those things, that knowledge, for the relief of humankind, for the, if your neighbor needs food, you feed them. If they're hungry, you clothe them. If they're sick, you cure their illness. That idea is how they came to understand what science was for. Science is part of our worship and glory to God, and science is part of how we address the suffering, the illness, the shortcomings of life and humanity and the world and the cosmos, and that's our God-given calling. I would say another motivation was a search for truth. Yep. A search of true understanding of what is the nature of reality, what is the true nature of this world God has created, because by the time we get to Luther, we've had centuries of the development and articulation of Christian thought, belief, practice yep. in the world. It almost feels like, okay, we've got this hyper-authoritarian, massive right. Catholic church organism, and it's stranglehold on truth, and now we've got people questioning that, pushing back against that, saying, okay, we, we feel like we've got a handle on theological truth, yeah. and now we've got real questions about how did God create the world? How yeah. does the world function? What's the nature of disease? What is what is the nature of the even, uh, or do, does the solar system revolve around Light Earth? Earth. Yeah. Do yeah, we yeah. do we revolve around the sun, and right. what are the ramifications of that? So I yeah. don't disagree with you. I think that they were very much about let's do everything we can to the glory of God. Let's alleviate suffering because so many of the things that happened as a result of Christian faith early on, even were the establishment of hospitals, the caring for orphans, the yeah. love of concern for humanity, um, and I, I think the arrival at 
what is true, what can we truly know, and how can we know it, and how can we develop this way mm -hmm. of knowing, this understanding of this process? I, I think that search for truth was understood by um, uh, a lot of these people as part of the worship of God, right? Like God created the solar system in a certain way, and it's it was designed for us to to find that out, and so and in that process, it would be part of how we worship God. Yeah. Just seeing how that plays out in the world, uh, I think of. We're affiliated with a little bit, but um, when a bus accident happens in India and 75 people, mm. died, well, that was their fate. Mm. Uh, compare that with here, we look okay, what caused the accident? Was it bad training of the driver, mm -hmm. bad roads, uh, mechanical failure, exactly what, what was it? You see that in train accidents in India with the Hindu religion, uh, it's, just, it's just fate that caused it. And to see how that plays out in real life, that there's a church slash school slash children's home that, that we are affiliated with. Uh, when COVID hit, um, by the way, they're persecuted over because they're Christians. In the town, they have trouble buying property, you have to pay extra for whatever. Yeah. Persecution. But when COVID hit, uh, they came to this organization. Could you help bring food to the village because yeah. nobody else will do it? Yeah. And why would this Christian group do it? Because they're trying to glorify God and they're trying to bring relief to, yeah. the, to the community. Yeah. So the government really isn't doing much to help because it's just people's faith behind it. I think probably these deep, deep motivations are really true. Most of the geeks that I know are just curious. Yeah, that's you know, right. Sure. Go, yeah. I wonder how that works. Yeah. Sometime later in life, they go, "Oh, this was really helpful." But yeah. They didn't necessarily think all this through. Right. Well, and um, certainly, uh, yeah. If you, I'm sure, if you survey a lot of scientists today, this is not, you know, really what they're thinking. But the people at the core of the scientific revolution weren't just tinkering around; they were evangelizing uh, their societies to work on these projects. And so one of the things uh, I'll mention here in a minute, the Royal Society, founded in 1660 with the Royal Charter, the Royal Society for the Advancement of, of Knowledge or the Advancement of Learning. And this is one of the core institutions of the scientific revolution. It's the longest standing um, scientific institution in the world. It's continually um, been running since, since the 1600s, and it's the most influential organization in science. And I think this m marks the moment when science actually sort of consolidated, where we went from that boom-bust cycle to saying, no, we are doing this as a society. This is going to be core. And that institution, to set that up, to drive people to that, to fund resources, all of that kind of stuff, that required more than just curiosity. It required somebody to say, there is a, a religious reason to do this, and if we don't do that, we will be, in some sense, falling down on our Christian calling. Yeah. I'm just thinking about maybe God's grace um, in Luther... He came about about 40 years after Gutenberg and then the printing press. Yeah. And so, you know, Copernicus and Galileo weren't able to maybe get the word out. Mm. But Luther's 
certainly was for the glory of God from his standpoint. Mm -hmm. But because of that printing press, yeah. there was the opportunity yeah. to spread the word of his ideas yeah. much faster than would have been the case before that. Yeah, that's right. Um, there needs needs to be a lot of prerequisites that 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 ability to share information is is necessary to, to be there. There's also another thing that we take for granted, which is the willingness to share information. Even an early scientist, what you'll see is they will have accumulated knowledge and they will not share it. And if you think about that, that is disastrous to science. If that knowledge dies with you, that like your whole effort has been wasted. But people were so afraid of sharing knowledge, so like kind of clinging to it because they didn't have the theological framework to say, no, I, that, that knowledge needs to be a gift to the world. And so one of the big things that happened is that people like Francis Bacon, who's known as the, the father of the uh, scientific method, he says, you have to treat this as an act of charity. It's the only way. It's the only way God will bless it. You have to share this knowledge. And, um, and so that changes that culture of how scientific knowledge is. And then it can take advantage of the printing press and these, thing, these technologies we have once people have that. So I want to just, in the next, just the last few minutes here, um, and then we'll just kind of kick it back to you for questions. I just want to look at a few um, places where people are saying this, right? Um, so we looked uh, a, a few weeks ago at this uh, quote from Martin Luther, and he's, um, he's speaking in the context of the Reformation. He's saying, under the papacy, under the Pope, we didn't have the ability to do science like we needed to, like we were supposed to. And so he says, we are presently living in the dawn of the age to come, for we are beginning to acquire once again a knowledge of the creatures. Now we can look at the creatures much more correctly than was ever possible under the papacy. We begin by the grace of God to recognize his majestic works and wonders even within the little blossoms when we reflect how mighty and good God is. Therefore we praise and glorify him and thank him. We recognize the might of his word and his creatures, how powerful it is. He's saying that we, because we have returned to science, are beginning to get a taste of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is, consists of humanity and God working together, God inviting us to participate in his work. This is our human calling as Martin Luther sees it, and he thinks we've let, um, let it slide, that Christianity had been missing this. And so I just point out this to say that he understood this as part of the Reformation. Science was part of the Reformation project, to get back to science as God intended um, Kepler, we talked about a few weeks ago as well. He's really profoundly influential in this period. He's, he wanted to be a Lutheran priest. Instead, he became an astronomer. And so this, he, you know, he sees this as his theological work. Behold how through my effort God is being praised in astronomy. This is how he sees his, his work. Um, he talks about, I was thinking God's thoughts after him, since we astronomers are priests of the highest God. It benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but above all else, of the glory of God. Um, he's not kidding. If you read his works, this is literally what he's doing. He's saying, what was God thinking when God did this? And he's trying to figure it out. Um, and, and so he's talking about this as, as part of the calling. And I, I would read this prayer that he has. Uh, he says, 
um, <clears throat> talks about it being a duty, but I, I want to read read this prayer. It's um, a little bit long, but it, it's I just want to kind of highlight the way he's thinking about this. O thou who dost by the light of nature promote in us the desire for the light of grace, that by its means thou may transport us into the light of glory, I give thanks to thee, O Lord Creator, who has delighted me with thy makings and in thy works of thy hands have I exalted. He's saying God put nature there to provoke the salvation of souls. That this work is to draw on and bring to, lead to salvation. Behold, now I have completed the work of my profession, having employed as much power of mine as thou didst give to me. To those who are going to read these demonstrations, I have made manifest the glory of thy works, as much of its infinity as the narrows of my intellect could apprehend. If there is anything unworthy of thy designs brought forth by me, breathe into me also that which thou dost wish men to know, that I may make the correction. If I have been allured into rashness by the beauty of thy works, or if I have loved my own glory among men, while I am advancing in the work destined for thy glory, be gentle and merciful and pardon me. And finally, deign graciously to effect that these demonstrations give way to thy glory and the salvation of souls. He's very concerned that his work be about the glory of God, not his own glory. He's concerned that there would be something that might impede this. This is like what you would say before you deliver a sermon, right? Let you know, speak through me, speak with, you know, use my flawed abilities to bring about your praise and your glory. And he really believes this is in the process of saving souls. Because to contemplate the works of God provokes the worship of God, pro- promotes the salvation. Um, we've talked about Boyle, who, um, who also, uh, he's one of the most significant scientists in this period. He, um, he sees the, the work of science as a more acceptable act of religion than the burning of sacrifices or perfumes upon his altars. Boyle also intended to be clergy, but he felt that God was leading him in a different direction, and so he devoted his life to science. Um, and um, there's um, the history of the Royal Society. This is um, something that comes out 1667, just a few years into the Royal Society's existence. This is less a history than a manifesto. This is telling the world why they should engage in science. And he, and in the writing of this, um, Thomas Spratt lays out pretty much what Kepler talked about. He talks about how the work of science um, actually intensifies our ability to understand and believe in and worship God. And we're, I'm just going to skim through some of this stuff. Um, but, uh, so, uh, I'll read this bolded section. If, as the apostle says, the invisible things of God are manifested by the visible, then how much stronger arguments has he for his belief in the eternal power and the Godhead from the vast number of creatures that are invisible to others but are exposed to his view by the help of experiments? He's saying, looking in a microscope, we see so much more of God's glory and power than we would have otherwise, and we are provoked to worship. Um, and so he, he talks all through this about the, the calling to praise the Creator and to direct those praises correctly when we understand the nature of things. And so he sums up by, yeah, last, I'll, I'll, I'll finish here. Um, 
He sums up by saying, this is the first service that Adam performed to his creator when he obeyed him in mustering and naming and looking to the nature of all creatures. This had been the only religion if men had continued innocent in paradise and had not wanted a redemption. He's saying this kind of scientific worship was what God gave us at the beginning. And um, I'll look at this. These are just poll quotes. Francis Bacon, why do we do science? The glory of the creator, the relief of man's estate. Robert Boyle, the glory of the great author of nature and the comfort of mankind. What is written into the charter of the Royal Society that has stood for hundreds of years as their purpose, their calling, their, their very reason for existence, the, to do science and technology to the glory of God and the advancement of the human race, and that stood since 1662. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Questions. I have a, I have a question. Yeah. Can you clarify? So what I heard in the quote from Luther about science being man's pursuit uh, into the nature of what God had created yeah. and the perfect knowledge, they did Luther and others of that time believe that I'm trying to be precise in my language, did they believe that Adam and Eve and creation was in a state of perfection prior to the what we call the fall of man and for lack of Yeah, there's two different theories in Christian history. One is that Adam and Eve were in the state of perfection, and the other is that they were in a state of, of infancy, destined to grow into that kind of perfection. And so what you'll typically find in like Martin Luther and, and a lot of the phrasing is talking about Adam as being in that state of perfection before he fell, right? But you'll also find um, people saying, you know, this was the calling, this was what humanity was supposed to grow into if they had not fallen. So you get both of those kind of takes. How much is that impacted by, we think of perfect as no flaws, but... Yeah, but it, I mean, there's times, especially in Scripture, where it was meaning complete, as yeah. opposed to no flaws. Yeah, and, and certainly, I think if you just read Genesis one and two as it's written, you would not come away with thinking that in Genesis two they're not they're not doing the full work. You know, God says, "Go into all the world, fill the earth," right? Genesis two, they they haven't done that yet. The Garden of Eden, they're not doing that. They're starting. The process. They still have work to do. So they are in a right relationship with God, but they are in a process of growth to fulfill that ultimate mission. Right. Yeah? I'll just uh, throw out a, uh, a recommendation. Uh, Eric Katz is a good man. He's a biography of Mark Luther. Oh, okay. Uh, it, 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 it's for, it, for uh, non theologians. Yeah. It, but it really gets to a lot of the problems, you know, in, in that document to the wall. Yeah. It, it seems to me what down deep what Luther really valued was before the fall, um, Adam and Eve and mankind were not distracted, blinded, um, duped by institutional presence. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's where Luther ultimately right. the triumph of the individual. Yeah. An individual responsibility, which led to science and basically to Western civilization and 
anyway. It's, mm -hmm. it's credibility. Mm. I'm curious to know if <clears throat> some of you with a long tradition, a long history in the Church of Christ tradition, saw anything in what he said um, that reminded you of the Restoration Movement at all. It looks like a no. When we no. were just what is your curiosity for the individual curiosity? Debate about scripture. Yeah, debate. Could you clarify your question a bit more? Like, for those of us who came out of the very fundamentalist 1970s, 1980s Church of Christ tradition, in which well, the only I thing you can believe. 80s. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I grew up in the 80s Church of Christ, and you know, the Church of Christ is all about restoring the ancient order of things, doing things, Bible, calling Bible things by Bible names, and if it's not there, we don't do it. That's what yeah. That's how okay. I was how I was raised, you know, it was about restoring the ancient path of the ancient church. And as Mike and I were preparing and discussing, it was kind of clear that there, at least to some extent, some of these guys were looking at science as a restoration movement. Absolutely. We should have been doing this all along. Yeah. And the Pope got in the way, or yeah. the fall got in the way. If had there been no fall, this is what science and human life would have been like. Right. And so it's interesting to me that there is this impulse everywhere. Somebody at some point says, we got to go back. And I'm not advocating that because I actually, have, <laughs> I've changed to believe that really the creation was on a trajectory and not perfect, not complete. It's on a trajectory. And so there's, there's an impulse in us to go back. But it has to be temporary, it seems, before we can move forward. Something got lost, we have to pick it back up. But I thought it was really interesting that yeah. these people had a restoration mindset. Yep. Something was lost that we have to go back to. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. They they felt like, um, they even felt like uh, biblical characters were doing this work. So Solomon, David... Moses, they would look at them and say, look at the kinds of scientific work they were engaged in. That's an example of what we should be doing and should have been doing. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because it is a tendency what I've read over years of being in Christianity and different, looking at it in different ways. Yeah. There's a tendency that I think I have fallen into and I think broadly speaking most people fall into of saying my culture, my way of understanding, our culture, our way of understanding, we, we cannot read scripture without saying, oh, see, I'm right. This is, yeah. we, we pro I project my understanding onto an ancient culture, yeah. which was like the modern world is so far removed yeah. from yeah. the yeah. ancient way of understanding and believing. To them, there was no difference between the material world and the realm of the gods. It was all the gods. Anything that happened was, well, the God did it. The thunder God, the rain God, the fertility God, whatever. So it, I, what I'm saying is Luther, when I hear Luther and them saying, and they're not wrong in wanting to pursue science, but is looking back at, oh, Solomon did this. Oh, see, that science. Oh, Adam was supposed to name the animals. Oh, see, that's taxonomy. So all I'm saying is, were they projecting their 
beliefs yeah. onto an ancient text? Uh, almost certainly, right? Um, like nobody, nobody reads in a vacuum. They were reading it, and and I don't agree with all, you know as Daniel's saying, like I don't agree with all the arguments they were making. Um, I agree with some of the arguments and and sort of the the, the spirit that they were aiming towards with this. Um, uh, but you know the way they formulated it was also part of their their context, and they were working within like a lot of inherited traditions and trying to wrestle with that. So they're going to have limitations just as we do, so. as we do today. Yeah, sure. That's right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good holiday. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for your questions.